Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb things. Oh, no, I don't like that. I don't like it either. I just wanted to see if you're actually listening to me this morning. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne writers Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. I love that before we jumped on the mics, you were full on belting out one of those songs on radio and then you just dove straight in to the opening line without any warning at all. A woman of many talents coming up on today's show. The Royal Bebe, of course. The Daily Mail's invasive Margot Robbie story that sparked a conversation about public interest and, of course, the Met Gala. But first, Michelle, how was your week? Uh, it was an okay week. I am a little bit annoyed about my fake tan. I feel like this is a cycle on the podcast now where about once a Certainly month is. I do my fake tan. I'm constantly disappointed with how my fake tan turns out. I just cannot nail it. I don't understand how people do nail this because it never looks right on me. I've always got little imperfections that I can't figure out. You're looking at me with pleading eyes as if I have the answer. I'm terrible at fake tan too. I need your help with... Um, Mari Claire and with fake tan. Did I get that right? Mari. Mari Claire. Amazing. I've been practicing all week, like at different points of the day. It's not even coming up this week. At different points of the day, I've stopped myself to be like, Mari, just keep going through that word in my mind. You know what they say, practice makes perfect. (laughs) What else went on for you this week? Uh, My dog Peanut got diagnosed with anxiety this week and now she's on, don't laugh, it was actually very devastating when we all found out. Peanut lost her sister Coco in January and I mean, I loved Coco, but I've had this real bond and connection with Peanut, unlike any other dog or pet I've had before. Do not roll your eyes. I know I'm you're not. not a dog person. I was looking out the window. I tried to steal myself. <laughs> no, but Peanut and I are like best friends. And so when I found out that she was sick, she's had recurring ear infections since Coco passed away. And now she's got an anxiety disorder and she needs to be on Xanax. And it was actually really difficult when mum texted me to say Peanut is back at the vet. She's got anxiety. I had to go over that night and like hold her and cuddle her and visit her 
because it really it I, I guess you don't understand but when you have a dog that you have a really special bond with that dog is like a family member so it's almost like as if Evelyn was diagnosed with depression it is or something. absolutely not the same this is like the, the same this is like when my best friend I first met her when we were 12 and she tried to tell me that she'd be more upset if her dog died <laughs> than if her brother died and I don't know how we became friends after that but we did she also her dog I can't believe Gizmo's getting a shout out already Gizmo her dog also has a little bit of anxiety around lightning so they have to put a lightning vest on him when there's lightning it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Well, I'm convinced that Peanut has separation anxiety. Mind you, I did tell a male friend this this week and he goes, oh, does she have anxiety over the fact that you called her Peanut? Well, Which I think Peanut's a great name, but it was actually a big part of my week and I'm sorry to Peanut and I feel really sad for her and hopefully she can come off the Xanax in coming weeks. But if anyone listening to this feels the same way I do and you love your dog this much, please come into the group and tell us about it because Zara, it's a thing. They're like family members. I promise you. Of course. Apart from that, I do have a recommendation. I do really want to recommend Dead to Me on Netflix. You recommended it in our newsletter and it is brilliant. I was sobbing uncontrollably when I was watching it because I am such a wuss. But at what point did you start sobbing? Because I <laughs> I watched it. It's sad and it's funny. But when you said to me, I could not stop sobbing, I was wondering at what point made you cry. Any point where she's grieving her dead husband. Uh, I can't yeah. deal with the idea of losing my significant other. It's kind of like when I watched Afterlife with Ricky Gervais. I cannot cope. It is my worst nightmare. And so therefore I sob like ugly ugly sobbing maybe it's because i don't have a significant other so i just don't have a heart by default i think i'm just particularly yeah. sensitive but how was your week my week was good um feeling a little tired and mildly burnt out at the moment i have to be totally honest i feel like i always come onto this mic and answer the same way which is my week was great and it always is good but i do i mean in the interest of transparency i'm really fucking tired at the moment mm. we have two really major projects coming out in june which i hate us for clickbaiting like i hate us so much but i also don't hate us enough to not keep clickbaiting them. <laughs> um, so they are sucking up a lot of time, which is really, really great. But, you know, they are sort of very consuming energy-wise and time-wise. Well, we consider Shameless to be our baby. So now we've got two other babies on the way. It's like we're pregnant with twins yeah. while taking care of the newborn baby at the same time. That's a good analogy. Come I on. don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> um, but we also have Mechaland this weekend, which I am super, super excited about. It seems like it's almost going to be otherworldly Mechaland. So it's going to be running from the 17th to the 19th of May, yeah. which is from Friday through to Sunday. How are you feeling about it? I feel like it will be the biggest weekend of our careers. We're going to be surrounded by Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, Zoe Foster-Blake, Chloe Morello, Sammy Robinson, a whole raft of other celebrities, influencers, media personalities that we've looked up to for some time, particularly Zoe. Well, basically Zoe's two biggest fans. I can't wait. I'm actually so excited. And the fact that we are across every single session, I'm just like bubbling with nervous anticipation, but also just overwhelming excitement about it all. Totally. So we will be there every single day. And if anyone actually is still interested in getting down to Mechaland, we actually do have a special treat for you because we want our shameless listeners there yes. as well. So what we put on our Instagram story the other day, and we wanted to mention it on the podcast too, is that if you use the code shameless at checkout, you can receive a double pass for you and your friend for $75, which is normally 150 bucks. So you get it for half price. Exactly. I think there are still limited tickets available. So please come and get down. And we really want to um, meet some of our Sydney Shameless listeners because we haven't yet. And we love having a chat with the listeners as well. We love bumping into you guys. So this will not even be bumping in. We can all hang out together at Mechaland. So please come up, say hi, get a selfie with us. We are so excited. If we seem really nervous, just kind of give us a pat on the back maybe. <laughs> and a cup of tea would be wonderful. <laughs> oh, what about recommendation? Anything? Um, not hugely. I have been watching Dead to Me as well. I was going to ask you what episode you're up to. Uh, Mitch and I binged four in a row last okay. night and then Mitch decided I was crying too much. 
and dehydrating myself and therefore it was bedtime. Yeah, I would definitely recommend Dead to Me. I have binged it. Maybe I'm up to episode six or episode seven. Yeah, the twist was pretty unexpected. Mm. I mean, I think I expected the first twist, but the second twist I was like, The other thing I would recommend, I did put this in the newsletter too, um, is a story on Harper's Bazaar that I have been sending to everyone and it's called Men Have No Friends and Women Are Carrying the Burden. Mm. And it's all about how men have not been taught to have like meaningful, productive, deep connections with each other. So when they sort of form romantic relationships with women, and we're talking predominantly about heterosexual relationships right now, women are bearing the brunt and carrying the burden of all of their sort of emotional needs. Yeah. And I have found that in my personal life across the board with my male friends or watching like my um, circle of friends and their relationships. I just thought this is everyone I know. So I'll put that article in the show notes. I can't stop plugging it everywhere. I want you all to read it. Yay. Should we actually get into the show though? Yay. I'm super excited for today's episode. I'm just a bundle of joy right now. A royal baby was joined. So humble. (laughs) A royal baby joined the universe during the week. And of course we're doing a royal segment. Everyone gets annoyed when I say that I don't want to talk about royal things. I am so keen for the royal segment today. She's done a 180. She was the one that pushed the royal bibber segment, not even me. Can you stop saying bibber? Unfortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> so we did welcome little, I would call him Prince, but apparently he's not a prince, Archie Harrison Mountbatten Windsor. He's actually Master Archie, I'll have you know. Okay. So he wasn't given a royal title at birth, likely at his parents' request. So he will be known as Master Archie. I can't take any <laughs> of this shit seriously when we're talking about a four-day-old baby. He kind of sounds a little bit like a villain. You can imagine. Like a toddler villain. Or like a like a tiny butler or something. Like you yeah. can imagine him always turning up in a bow tie. <laughs> I will say I did when I found out that the name was Archie, I went through and I looked up the meaning of the name Archie. It means truly brave, which then Zara led me to searching what your name means. Do Ooh, you know? Absolutely not. Zara. Zara means seed and flower. There are a few other definitions of Zara, but I think that was the very, very first original one. Michelle, ready for this? It means gift from God. Okay. You couple, can't argue with that. Are you taking questions at this time? <laughs> a couple of things. Firstly, you could have pulled this out of your ass. No, I didn't. Secondly, it. who decides? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get too like deep and analytical right now, but I'm going to. Who decides what a name means? Like who actually creates that? Because that is incredibly subjective. Well, I don't know. I think this is like thousands and thousands so of years old. So you're meant to do your research and you look positively stumped right now. You don't know where these meanings have come from. <laughs> I'm happy to Google it. I think Michelle's a very Catholic name. Gift and, from God. Well, technically Michael means gift from God and Michelle's just the, like dunce female version of Michael, I think. Another question. What happens if you don't believe in God? Does that mean you don't actually exist? Well, I don't believe in God. I am atheist, but I was baptized Catholic and my mum is very Catholic. So you're actually a gift from nowhere. (laughs) That's assuming that we're atheist. Anyway, let's go back to Archie because I have to say... What a fucking casual name. Why Love it. Why isn't his name Archibald? I think I'll be calling him Archibald because you absolutely cannot have a royal baby called Archie. What are we going to start calling the other royal kids? Shaz and <laughs> Lulu and G. <laughs> Lulu would be nice. I'd be right behind Lulu. But apparently all of the royal experts did say that this name from Harry and Meghan is a strong indication that they'll be raising their son as a very informal royal. So they don't want him to have the title. They don't want him to have the classic royal name with origins in royal history. They want him to be his own person and oh. fuck yeah I'm all for Archie being his own person a normal being, kid of yeah. course he's gonna be so so normal you know what I really enjoyed did you see the meme I think we actually put this up on our Instagram account so you would have seen it 
Just heard the news that the royal baby is doing well. Well, he's only been on the planet for five minutes. He's already a prince, absolutely loaded, and will never have to work a day in his life. I'd say he's fucking smashing it. Okay, I liked the meme, but I want to catch a technicality where I don't actually think he's a prince. Yeah, he's not. Which is a bit disappointing. I still liked the meme, and I think all of our listeners liked the meme on our Instagram account as well. I tell you what I loved as well. I don't know if many people watched the footage of when Meghan and Harry came out at Windsor Castle and presented Bebe Archie to the crowd, <laughs> to the crowd, to the media. And the person asking the questions was cracking me up. He was like to Megan and Harry, what's the baby like? What's the baby's temperament like? He's a fucking baby. He is mute and he has no personality. What did you think about the little rumor on Twitter that the baby was actually born two weeks ago? I know this supports your bizarre conspiracy theory from a couple of episodes ago. Which was what? Because apparently Harry said at some point, I think he just jumbled his words. He was trying to say when answering that question that babies change a lot in the first two weeks. They don't know what he looks like properly yet. I think the question was, who does he look more like, you or Megan? Exactly. The person asking the questions was asking the dumbest questions alive. Yeah. Onwards. And so he said, oh, I think they actually change a lot in the first two weeks. But the way it came out was he has changed a lot in the first two weeks, which made people go, he was born two weeks ago. What a conspiracy. But I'm pretty sure Meghan Markle was papped and at events in the past two weeks, which means that conspiracy theory is bogus. He definitely just jumbled his words. There's no way they're going to release the wrong birthday to the world. Like we're not going to celebrate Master Archie's birthday on the wrong date every single year. That's just not a thing that's going to happen. It's disappointing for you, obviously, because you were the one that said that the baby was born a couple of weeks ago. I was the one who had said it. He he hadn't been born yet. I was literally so close. to be like, Zara, I'm so impressed by your maturity in acknowledging that you were very, very wrong. I think we all know Michelle, I would never make a prediction about the royals. That's a terrible thing to do. You can't just twist this. <laughs> I want to reach across this table and slap you. One more thing I wanted to finish on with this kind of royal bebe segment oh. is talking about Will and Kate because they were interviewed um, a couple of days after Archie was born and a couple of Master things... Master Archie to you. Master Archie to me. A couple of things, uh, you know, piqued my interest. The first was William being so dorky. He is so dorky mm. right now. He said, I would like to welcome um, my brother to the sleep deprivation society that is parenthood. What the fuck was that <laughs> accent? Did you, I, <laughs> what was I'm so that? tired. <laughs> yeah, do it again. Do I it again. Can't. I just want to hear it again. Okay. I would like. <laughs> you're not editing this out either. No, I think you're editing this way. <laughs> I would like to welcome my brother to the sleep. <laughs> okay, we need to actually do our jobs right now. Anyway, the joke is not the accent. The joke is the joke that he cracked. He's so dorky. That's all I wanted to say. The second thing that I wanted to say is when they were <laughs> interviewed, it was a couple of days after Master Art. She was born and they hadn't met the baby yet. And I find that so weird. If I had a baby, I'm pretty sure my siblings would have been there within the first 24 hours. Front and center. So there is Getting a Getting a full view or would you, who would you have in the room when you have birth, when um, you have birth, give birth? Well, the, hopefully the father, mm. whoever that might be <laughs> right now, <laughs> slim picking. Um, and my mum. Yeah. She doesn't know that yet. So thanks, Mum. <laughs> Trish, you're going to be there. Great. <laughs> what about you? Uh, partner. Oh, probably I'd want everyone. My sister's a midwife and Evelyn's starting to become a doctor. So probably partner, mum and sisters. Oh, amazing. Is that too many? How many are you allowed? I mean, it's your baby. Your body, your choice, hon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, next bitch. And now it's time for the quick and dirty. Every week we give you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity news cycle. Zara, please give it to me. That sounded sexual, not Ooh, sexual. Was it? 
who knows? We spend a lot of time together these days. Give it to me in a very platonic way. <laughs> That's not what you say off air, Michelle. Oh my God, this episode. I swear to God. Anyway, story number one. The guy behind Fire Festival wants to organize a sequel and like dude. That's from Junkie. I really admire his tenacity in trying to keep this PR machine going. Bobby McFarlane, was it? Billy McFarlane. Billy McFarlane. What does he actually want to do? I think he literally wants to make a 2.0, as in launch another festival, make another TV series about it, or make another Netflix series about it. Is this just a fake story, though? Like, is this just people running off rumours and so- like an anonymous sources, or is this Billy McFarlane coming out and giving an interview from jail saying he wants to do it again? He's actually done an interview with the New York magazine from his jail cell. He's done it via email, and he said the festival will not be a one-and-done event. It's happening again. What's the saying? You should move through the world with the confidence of a mediocre white male is this not that in a in an example absolutely i think he's also writing a memoir too they say which he's writing it from prison where he is serving six years and he is hand delivering pages to his partner or his girlfriend and will be scheduled to release (laughs) in 2024 i'll be about 70 when 2024 so good luck to him (laughs) number two surely this is a prank amy schumer's baby name baffles fans that's from news.com.au michelle the baby name was gene attle fisher it's it's hard when you're a comedian if you actually want to be serious about something that's a bit quirky because people will assume you're taking the piss. Well, think about it. Say that again. Gene Attle. Genital. Uh, genital. So it's a joke? Well, I don't think she meant for it to be a joke, but everyone's tweeting her going, did you realise that these two names together sounds like genital? Gene Attle. And it really reminds me of that ad on television. I think it's for a milk company or an iced coffee company or something where the name that this boy gets given at birth is Callum Murray. And then (laughs) have you seen that ad? My favourite game to play around with a group of friends just on a tangent is giving the best possible like combination of names. Well, I know someone, I think my auntie was considering calling my nephew Lee. Her last name is King. So it's going to be Lee King. Lee King. Uh, Just amazing stuff. (laughs) But Gene Attle, I'm I'm not sure... It's quite there in terrible name combinations. I wouldn't call my baby Gene Attle. It does sound a little bit like genital, but that's not the only reason I wouldn't call it Gene Attle. Do you oh, get me? I do get you. I don't mind it. Gene is quite a lovely name. And also, he's Gene Fisher. So it's not often you get called by your first and middle name. True. Michelle mm. Louise? No, Elizabeth. See? <gasps> oh, yeah, it used to be your Facebook name. <sighs> See, not many people know your middle name, so I'm not so stressed by it. I'm offended that now, you don't know me at all. What's my middle name? Uh, Elise. Oh, no. Zara Elise. No. What is it? Ellis. Damn, it's so close, though. (laughs) Number three, Semenya loses landmark legal case against IAAF over testosterone levels. That is from The Guardian. I actually put this one in because I think it's been such a massive conversation this week. It has been proliferated on social media so widely that I think it has kind of moved into this pop culture space now where lots and lots of people are discussing this and this isn't just a sport conversation anymore it's a societal conversation so what do you think about it i have to say i don't think i have the knowledge to actually have an opinion Mm. i don't know enough so i don't have one although my heart initially goes out to semenya because these kinds of things can't be easy it seems so um muddy and hard and I have to say I haven't done the I haven't done enough reading to actually form an opinion that matters yeah I really encourage people to go do some reading on this particularly by the Guardian they've done some really good work around it so for those who missed it Casta Semenya does have a DSD that refers to a difference of sexual development so it's commonly referring to people who are born intersex so often intersex women 
are born with testicles inside their body. So this actually represents almost about 1% of the population. If you do some reading into it, the studies that are peer-reviewed and robust and are widely recognized suggest that intersex people may be as common as red-haired people. Mm. This is a huge, huge portion of society based on what we probably thought it was previously. And I really recommend you go and read about intersex people and about DSDs. It's a really interesting discussion. I think this finding is very complicated and when we talk about it we probably need to acknowledge all the complexity that comes with this do you have an opinion uh my initial opinion is the same as you i feel the utmost sympathy for Castor Semenya. Yeah. I don't think it's as simple as some of the arguments that, well, if you're born a certain way genetically, then that's just a blessing and you should be able to do yeah. whatever you want well, with that. It does feel oversimplified, but the crux of what I would think I think sits there somewhere, yes. somewhere in that argument. I think there's gray area and I think I do lean towards Castor Semenya, but I don't think it's cut and dry. I definitely don't feel black and white about it. Interesting. Number four, Cara Delevingne and her true love, Ashley Benson, dressed down for flight out of JFK together. It's a nothing story, but the reason that I wanted to put it in there is, did you know that Cara Delevingne and Ashley Benson were dating? Who is Ashley Benson? The chick from Pretty Little Liars. Google her. Google her. You'll know who she is. I feel like Cara Delevingne has been off the radar for a really long Mm. time now. Was she at the Met Ball She was. She was in the stripy, colourful, like she was fully striped. She was, she was. I just didn't know that she was dating Ashley Benson and I quite Mm. like them together. Interesting. What did they look like when they were dressing down? Um, You know, as anyone dresses down on a flight out of JFK. (laughs) So literally what we're wearing right now. I mean, you're wearing a jumper. I'm wearing the ugliest jacket in the world. I think they're a little bit more designer chic than us, but... Anywho, I wanted to pop that in there. And number five, Instagram influencer wins $1,600 after Melbourne cafe deal goes sour. That is from The Age. What a story. This was a great story this Do you want to give context? I sure do. So Chloe Roberts is an Instagram influencer from Melbourne. Um, I think she dabbles more in the fitness kind of sphere. Yes, she has been, she's been pretty popular for the last 12 months in particular. I remember first stumbling across her about 12 months ago and I think every guy under the age of 18 that I've ever met in my entire life follows her. Interesting. She has well over 100,000 followers and she um, went into a deal with Legacy Camberwell, as a lot of Melbourne influencers do, to post about being at the cafe Mm -hmm. in return for cash. What actually happened was she posted about the cafe a few times and then after a week or so of the posts being up had deleted them. Mm -hmm. So she got into a little bit of a stoush with the Camberwell cafe. Um, They said that because she had deleted the photos that she had sort of violated what she'd agreed to do. Mm -hmm. She said, well, you got all the exposure in a week. How many more people are going to be looking at these photos after a week? They took it to court. Yes. And it was ruled in Chloe's favor. She actually won $1,600 back. What do you think? Because I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that judgment. I actually think that in myself and my own social media behavior, I will scroll through people's accounts or I would when I'm younger, probably don't do this anymore. But maybe when I was 20, I would scroll through influencers accounts and look at where they were going to brunch. I just find it interesting to know. And so I do think, although the likes would come predominantly in the first 24 to 48 hours that a post is up, I don't necessarily think that's when the most uh, recommendations or suggestions are coming in a person's head when they're looking for where they should go and go get a bowl of acai. I think I disagree, but maybe I disagree because our Instagram habits are quite different. I don't Mm. tend to go back through people's profiles and look at their old stuff unless I'm really going at it and stalking somebody. (laughs) See, I do all the time. I don't even think I scroll through the feed so much. I typically go through people and then scroll through their grid. Which is going to inform our opinions on this. Mm -hmm. I do agree in the the judgment that was handed down touched on the fact that her posts or her posts were likened to that of a billboard in that the most exposure comes after a week and after that, you're not going to get that much awareness 
or brand awareness or or anything meaningful after a week. Mm-hmm. So she did win $1,600 as we keep touching on. I did really like the final quote of the story. It, this is like when worlds collide, like our fluffy <laughs> or what people would like to think is our fluffy Instagram influencer world colliding with the fundamentals of the legal system and like the most serious part of our society. Mm-hmm. It's very, very funny. So it was VCAT's deputy president, Mr. Ian Lullum, said he did note in his judgment a dichotomy between the young, slim consumers and the thoughtfully plated but somewhat enormous meals. <laughs> Perhaps they are share plates, he suggested. <laughs> it's just like it's an amazing thing when such such different worlds do collide. I really enjoyed that story. It will set an interesting precedent, though. I do also feel sorry for Chloe Roberts because she's getting a raft of hate and really mean comments on her mm, post right now. Agreed. And I think people who are going to come for her for receiving money for going to a cafe need to really recalibrate the way they're thinking about influencer culture. She is an advertising channel. She can advertise in whatever way she wants. She's got an audience. It clearly fucking works. Otherwise, Legacy wouldn't have gotten her in so many times. Well, her feed is an essential billboard. Like that yeah. comparison is incredibly correct. If you're not going to get angry about the billboards that you drive past on your way to work, I don't think it's necessarily fair getting angry at Chloe Roberts, who is simply capitalizing off an audience that she built. This week, the love-hate relationship we have with the Daily Mail verged way, way, way into the hate zone once again, with the tabloid pressing publish on a story headlined, The Last Goodbye. Heartbroken Margot Robbie fights back tears as she gathers with family and friends for the funeral of her beloved grandmother, Verna Kessler, who died aged 92. Zara, how do you feel about the Daily Mail perhaps, first of all, being at Margot Robbie's grandmother's funeral and then documenting her grieving her grandmother? I felt incredibly angry when I saw this come up on my news feed. I think like a lot of people, I don't think many people are going to look at an article like that and feel good about it. I did feel incredibly angry. And I think when I see these stories around there, I'll be interested to see or to hear if you agree with me, but there are elements of embarrassment I feel about being part of an industry that does that. Oh God. Yeah. And it makes me feel grubby. Well, I think we are so grubby when it comes to death. And I think the Daily Mail is the best example of it. Like for us, apparently, or for the Daily Mail, there's nothing more salacious or interesting um, about someone grieving or a funeral. It's such a weird thing to chase. Yeah. And it's why I hate sometimes referring to myself as a digital journalist, because sometimes it is associated with stories like this, which I absolutely oppose. But I think we can all agree the story is absolutely horrific. Nobody is so famous they should have their most private moments promulgated for clicks and for advertising revenue. It really reminded me, these photos of uh, Margot Robbie grieving and crying at her grandmother's funeral, which, of course, were taken at very... very carefully selected times when she happened to have a hand near her face or she happened to be looking particularly downcast. They were all very curated and specifically chosen, of course. They reminded me a lot of the commentary that surrounded Kate Spade's suicide Mm. last year. I remember that I felt intense fury that we spoke about on the podcast this time last year when people wrote about Kate Spade's daughter and the suicide note that Kate Spade supposedly left her. I think there is so much focus concern that the media use to excuse covering topics like this. And I think it's just disgusting. Well, it's like they know they're doing a shit thing. So because they know they're doing a shit thing, they try to make sure that their tone is as sympathetic as it possibly can Mm -hmm. be. Like 
devastating for Margot Robbie. And it's just, it doesn't undo the damage. Like it doesn't even make a dent on the damage. What's interesting to me is if, if we pull this story into a conversation about greater public interest is that people would, like the Daily Mail or whoever was writing articles about Kate Spade's daughter, that would argue that this is in the public interest, that people are clicking on these stories so that we have to write them. I really do think, and I don't think this is me being overly optimistic or naive. I think if we straw polled Australians, they would prefer that this story didn't run. Yeah. And I think they would also acknowledge that, yes, they might click, but they would prefer not to even have the option to click. I think it gets to the worst part of ourselves. And sometimes you might click on these stories and click out feeling like, why the fuck did I just give that publication my click? Why did I give them that advertising revenue? Because this was a headline that actually appeared last year. Kate Spade told her daughter, it's not your fault in suicide note. That was an actual headline that appeared in one of our largest news publications across the country. And the entire tone throughout this piece, as with the Margot Robbie piece was the poor thing. It's just heartbreaking. How could this happen to her? What a sad case of events. And I just think, what is the benefit there? How does anyone benefit apart from the Daily Mail to having that story up there? It is so intrusive. It is so symptomatic of a culture where we feel like we own celebrities. We own everyone. Yeah, exactly. That they are products that we are entitled to. I'm interested in this idea of public interest, right? Because I think public interest is incredibly subjective. What you think is interesting to the public and important to the public might be very different to what I think. And then once again, I imagine our perspective is very different to another journalist's. Something you consider or I consider irresponsible to report on could also double as an article that everyone is clicking on. Mm. So maybe in the Margot Robbie case, this did generate a lot of clicks. So is our clicks a measure of interest? And if it is, do we actually also need to self-reflect and analyze our own clicking habits mm. and how we inform what's reported on too? Like it's, I don't know, I don't want to shift the blame completely, but I do want to acknowledge that we also have some power here in deciding what is interesting to us by deciding what we click on. Well, this is the disturbing thing, right? And I think lots of people are going to be really stunned where I, when I share this, because I remember being stunned as a young journo new to the industry. There was a particular person or a couple of people that I worked with a few years ago where the literal line that they would send to me would be, can we get some dead baby stories today? Because it was widely acknowledged that dead baby stories performed well. Lots of people clicked on them. Lots of people cared a lot about them. And it wasn't that you would be reporting on the best story that had merit or had any kind of public interest in mind. Or meaning. Or meaning. It was literally trying to find, and that was how they were termed, dead baby stories. And that to me, now that I'm out of it, makes me so fucking angry and I'm almost angry that as a young journo I didn't or a young writer I didn't stand up and think why am I doing this why am I looking for dead baby stories but I think it really points to a culture in digital media where so many young people are employed and thrust into this space brand new, fresh, green out of uni, and they just do what their editor tells them to do. And this is across all publications. It's not like one publication does this. If you scroll down any homepage these days, apart from maybe Fairfax or The Australian or the ABC, of course, you will find a whole lot of stories that do not apply to Australians. I remember last year I scrolled through the homepage. I don't want to say the publication because I don't think it's even necessary. Scrolled through the homepage and there was a story about a newborn baby and it's horrific and I don't even want to go into it, but probably the most horrific news story I've ever read. Very gruesome, very disgusting. And I remember 
reading the story and feeling very upset. And then I got to the last few paragraphs and it explained that this was a story that happened in 2015 in Ireland. And the only reason they were covering this was because very recently the mother posted something on Instagram about it. And I remember thinking to myself, why on earth is this a story in Australia in 2018? This was the end of last year. Why do we need to report on this? And the why is simple as this is to get clicks. I think that's a really important thing for people to recognize who might not work in the industry or understand how the industry functions is that it might be worth you looking at homepages and actually uh, critically analyzing why the stories are sitting there. Like, does this have a bearing on how we function as an Australian society? If it doesn't, then it wants your click and it wants your click, not because it wants you to be informed or happy or feel fulfilled when you read that story. It's because it needs your click. Mm. I want to touch on what you said before about young journalists who are thrust into these scenarios and don't know what to do with the role that they've been given or the story they've been told to write. I do think this is an important point. And this is not once again, shifting blame or excusing stories and behavior. But I do think that there's a misunderstanding about the role of journalists, sometimes young journalists who have no power. Uh, The industry is really hard at the moment. It's really, really, really hard to get a job. It's really hard to to maintain a job. It's really hard for newspapers and digital outlets to make money. Like I think it's important for us to be transparent about that across the board. And so when a journalist is writing a story like this, for example, the journalist tasked with writing the Margot Robbie story would have absolutely no power in saying no to that. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make it right. And that doesn't mean that we should excuse all of it. But I do think it's it's maybe an important point to make. I remember I touched on this in the Facebook group uh, a week or so ago when we were talking about Jade Tunchi calling out a journalist. And what she did on her Instagram story is she blacked out the name of the journalist but wanted to, you know, put the email in there so they could understand the publication and the sentiment that was coming. And I appreciated that because I think the publication's reputation should be the one ruined, mm. not the journalist who might be doing a job they have no power in saying no to. Absolutely. And I don't think you can comprehend how extreme the pressure can be in these scenarios as well. I think above anything, above newsworthiness or benefit to the public, the number one criteria for publishing a story these days is will it get traffic? That's it. It's the main cornerstone of any story that is published. Will people click on it now? And I think when I was 20 or 21, I made some decisions that I really fucking regret. And I also think that it's hard. You can't take your byline off things. If you are tasked with writing a story that you probably don't want to write and you can vocalize that, say, I'm not comfortable with this, it will probably at the end of the day still be your byline up on the internet and you will receive likely a fair bit of abuse or a fair bit of hate for that, for something that you might've spoken up about that you might have said that you don't feel comfortable with. It's not the editor's name up there. And Zara, I might have even given you when I was the editor uh, in our roles and you were the writer, I might have given you stories you didn't feel comfortable with. And that's probably, that's probably, it, it points to the damaging aspect of the industry where the people copying hate for these things and the people copying a whole lot of abuse or even legal implications as we saw with the Cardinal Pell trial aren't the people who actually picked out the stories or published the stories. They're the people who are tasked with just writing them. Well, I think when it comes to public interest, because there's no definition and because it's vague and ambiguous and based on judgment calls, those judgment calls are getting increasingly clouded and more problematic the more digital media struggles because no one in digital media is making money. I did want to flip this conversation a little bit and touch on when invasive stories have meaning, right? And I know that might sound a bit weird, but I remember when there were photos of Thomas Kelly's funeral published across major news outlets. And Thomas Kelly was the 18-year-old who was fatally hit at King's Cross that sparked all of those lockout laws. 
in Sydney. And his, his funeral was broadcast pretty prolifically across the media. And it got me wondering then, and it makes me wonder now, is that in the public interest? Is seeing a grieving family crucial to humanising an issue we actually all need to act on? Well, does that need to be done at the funeral or could they have shown their grief in other ways after the funeral? I wonder if you went and asked those parents, would you like the media to be at this funeral or would you like to actually express this in your own way, in your own time after the fact? Because they did go on to become such huge advocates, not only for mental health, but for coward punches and violence on the street, particularly alcohol-fueled violence. Well, they did come on the record very early after his death, within a day of his death, and spoke to the media. So there are elements of pragmatism about this, that if we're going to move forward on really tough, fucking hard issues, do we need to see human loss to make sure that we all actually do something about it? Because sometimes we just sit back and assume things don't affect us or mm. would never affect us. Mm. I also want to see, I mean, it's, all, it's I think it's important to ask where else invasion is helpful. I do think that there can be a misunderstanding as well about what a journalist's job is. And that's really hard as someone who is a journalist. Death knocks are a really interesting one to me. So for someone who doesn't know what a death knock is, I remember being incredibly confronted by the concept when I first sat in a uni lecture. And I think it was the first time that I thought maybe this industry and this job is not for me. And a death knock is essentially a journalist going to the house of someone who has just lost a family member to interview them. Often unexpectedly, often in pretty tragic or newsworthy ways. Without invitation. Yes. And the idea is that you have a story to tell. And the idea is that some good can come out of this story. Once again, put a human face to loss and pull people into gear. Mm. And I recommended in the newsletter this week, a podcast interview with Elizabeth Day, which I'll pop in the show notes. And she told a story as a young journalist in the UK of having to do a death knock. And she knocked on the door of this young family who had just lost a family member. And the family opened the door, the father opened the door and he said, it's actually the day of the funeral. And she had no idea. And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I will leave you. I'm so sorry. And she left and she called her newsroom and they said, can you wait in the car until they're ready to speak? And she told this interviewer, I had kind of two choices in that moment. Do I choose between my job or my sense of compassion? And she went home and she thought, I don't care if they're going to get really angry at me about this. I just, I can't do it. What ended up happening is that dad ended up calling her the next day and she she was the one that they wanted to speak to about. And in these scenarios, there are really important stories to tell. And I do think it's important for us to mention that because the media is not always evil when we're talking about really sad stories. I think they want to play a long game here and sometimes telling the stories of grieving families is the way to do it. Absolutely. I do want to wrap this segment with a quote from Michael White. He wrote this really searing story in The Guardian in 2016, weighing up what is in the public interest. And a quote really stood out to me. The tabloids do some great stuff, lots of it genuinely in the public interest. I just wish they were as rigorous in examining their own behaviour as they are in making a good expose watertight. A week ago today was the biggest red carpet event of the year. Yes, we're talking about the Met Gala. There were outrageous looks and complete works of art. The Met saturated with the most famous faces in the world. But of course, as it always does, conversation inevitably turned to Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian's dress and Kim Kardashian's waist. Mish, let's start with the Met Gala and make our way to the world's most famous woman. Happily. Uh, First, can we please start with all the men who looked like they were going camping instead of going to the Met Gala? The first note I have is... Let's start with the men, exclamation mark. Yeah. So the theme was camp, which means you cannot be too extra. Go extra and extra and extra. Go above and beyond and you're still not going to be too much. This is, I think, one of the best Met Gala themes themes I've seen in terms of bringing out brilliant and engaging and fun costumes. Definitely better than Roman Catholics. (laughs) That was 
bad. It was so bad. So I get the whole idea. There was, for those who missed it, a whole raft of men who rocked up in very simple black tuxedos as if they were going to the Oscars. And I do get the idea that maybe they wanted their partners to shine. But also, come on, if you were invited to a fancy dress party where the dress code is B as audacious as humanly possible, why the fuck would you rock up wearing something that could have been bought at Kathmandu? Who turned up wearing something that could have been bought at Kathmandu? Uh, we saw Kanye West wear this like kind of weird- bomber jacket, and I'll catch you on a technicality. I'm not going to buy a bomber jacket from Kathmandu. I understand your point, though. <laughs> I really did enjoy a story in Batuta Advocate that looked at Liam Hemsworth. Liam Hemsworth misinterprets Met Gala's camp theme and rigs up Hilux roof tent on red carpet. <laughs> My favourite quote in that story from Clancy Overall was, Hemsworth was seen wearing the type of all black suit you see your stepbrother's mate wearing on Facebook before his court date. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) I wonder though, to take a more serious um, perspective on these male outfits, in what kind of world have we created for them where they can't step out of their comfort zone probably for brand? Like we laugh at them for being so vanilla and disrespectful and boring, but truthfully, don't we have a lot to answer for if men can't be seen as flamboyant as the women? And I know some people will be saying, what about Harry Styles? That's completely part of Harry Styles' brand, to be a little bit, a little bit flamboyant and a little bit quirky. Kanye West has gone big in other years. A, a, about- a few years ago, he wore a completely bejeweled jacket with weird um oh, Kanye Kanye is a completely different kettle of fish. He just doesn't exist on my radar. <laughs> Coloured contacts. I'm talking more the Frank Ocean's, the Liam Hemsworth's. Would we, like, I wonder... I will catch you on Frank Ocean. He was very camp. Did you read about the meaning behind his outfit? Oh, no, but he just looked like he was wearing something boring to So me. what his outfit was speaking to was there is a very very famous photographer whose name escapes me, I'm sorry, who would walk around uh, the streets of New York and Los Angeles and he actually documented camp culture despite the fact that he was not camp at all but he was always carrying his video camera and his camera in general and that was actually a point to this late photographer. Okay, that seems smart but don't you think it's also a bit of like a costume party cop out where you have like, you, you turn up and you're asked to go as like a royal and you turn up in a normal outfit and just have like a Prince Harry mask? No, I think it was clever because he was documenting everyone. Look, I could be wrong but I I am interested in the Liam Hemsworth thing. Like, in what world would we have let Liam Hemsworth turn up in the same outfit as Harry Styles? Oh, come on. That is such a cop-out. He could have rocked up in potentially so many straight men rocked up with flamboyant outfits on and they absolutely rocked it. I do not buy that we don't let Liam Hemsworth it's wear anything a, but a black maybe, suit. Maybe my language is wrong. It's not that we don't let them, but there is a huge sense of masculinity in Hollywood in the roles that he plays and the brand that he has. I wonder if it just simply wasn't helpful. Mm-hmm. It's more that than us. There would be. I think we really would have celebrated Liam Hemsworth if he had have come out and done it. I just think he might have struggled brand-wise. I just think they're at the very bottom of my worst dress list. Kanye West, Liam Hemsworth. Top of it. Okay, so if they're at the bottom, who's your top of it? Best dress. I actually made a whole list. Janelle Monae. She she, was my number one. Yeah, same. So she was wearing uh, this fantastic dress. I don't know. I'm not an arts person, so I don't know the correct terms for everything. But one of her boobs was an eye and her clutch had an eye on it too. So it was kind of like this weird art deco face thing. (laughs) Your fashion critics over here. (laughs) The fug girls, right? here uh Casey Musgraves who came as Barbie was epic you didn't like that when you first saw it I know but then I uh, read more about it I actually listened to bang on as well and they pointed out little things that she did yeah. to actually look like Barbie as well apparently she had her thumb and her index finger fused together the entire time the details were amazing yeah she really emulated Barbie to the nth degree uh Billy Porter of course oh my god he was am- actually he was my number one if you missed that you can go look at photos of Billy Porter coming in on literally a sea of men <laughs> <laughs> on our Instagram account at shameless podcast I also like Gigi 
Gigi Hadid, who looked kind of like a male ice skater gone rogue. Her eyelashes are incredible. Mm-hmm. And Lapita Nyong'o, who took the cake for her feathery pink explosion outfit. I would like to have a shout in, which is the opposite. Shout of, in. I feel like it might be the opposite of a shout out. Okay. Do we think? Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, to Carly Kloss, my beloved Carly Kloss. For the OG listeners of the show, you will know I have an unhealthy obsession with Carly Kloss to the point where it's kind of weird. <laughs> and Carly Kloss turned up to the Met Gala in the world's most boring dress. Yeah, she's on the worst dress list along with Kanye West and Liam. I felt like a bit embarrassed because <laughs> because I speak so much about Carly Kloss and her being like a warrior and like the best person alive. I felt like she really needed to represent me. Yes, I do want to talk about her husband's outfit as well. What's her husband's name? Josh Kushner. Josh Kushner. Again, boring, didn't go based on the theme. Very disappointing. Yeah, but it's a bit more awkward for someone like him who actually isn't in the public eye. No, you can still do something better. Wear a pink suit. Wear a red suit. Literally do anything other than a black suit. He was meant to wear a very sparkly bow tie. I saw in Carly Kloss's Instagram stories, but he substituted in for an even more extravagant regular black tie. I do want to get to Kim Kardashian, though, because I think that's where the focus of the conversation has gone in the days after the Met Gala. Mm. And the conversation is focused and fixated on her waist because it almost seemed completely otherworldly. It was like she was photoshopped in real life. That's how it felt. That's the first thing I thought. It looks like she's been photoshopped, but these are all real moving footage. Yeah. For those who want a bit of context, she was dressed by Thierry Mugler, who I'm sorry for my pronunciation of that. I know it's a French name and I no way also probably just butchered it. But he basically came out of retirement to make this dripping wet look on Kim Kardashian. The outfit was made out of silk organza, silicon, and it was dripping with crystals. But the conversation really centered not on the dress that she was wearing, but what was underneath it, which was the corset that was sucking in her waist to otherworldly proportions. And I think in Australia, the conversation was propelled along because Lisa Wilkinson was on the project, um, very well-known journalist, Lisa Wilkinson. And they were talking about Kim Kardashian's outfit. And Lisa said, how is this even physically possible? Like, where has she hidden all of her internal organs? Because if you squeeze in the middle like that, the stuff has got to come out somewhere else. And from there, particularly in our Facebook group, there were conversations about whether we should be able to comment on Kim Kardashian's waist and in what way we should be able to comment. Where do you sit on this? I was actually semi-surprised by how contentious this issue of Kim Kardashian's waist became. We actually had to remove two posts in the group about this that just went down the wrong direction. And you and I looked at it after we'd been at an event and just thought, you know what, it's not productive anymore. Let's take this down and discuss it in the podcast where we feel like we can get the nuance in, which you might not be able to get in a bite-sized paragraph on a Facebook thread. I am interested in discussions around Kim Kardashian as a businesswoman and as an empire. And I think when a lot of women came onto those threads in our Facebook group and said, we cannot discuss women's bodies, this is body shaming. Part of me definitely agrees. I think when we have conversations around women's bodies, we need to be really careful because we tend not to have the same conversations around men's bodies. However, I do think Kim Kardashian is a very nuanced case and there is a lot of gray area with Kim Kardashian, not just because her body is different and it's not what we typically see in the mainstream, but because she has made her body her brand. 
And I think Kim actually wants people to discuss her waist, not only because she posted up close selfies of her waist on her Instagram stories, but also because she literally welcomed Vogue.com into her dress fitting so she could show them piece by piece the corset fitting process. She showed them how she got her waist to be that tiny. They included that she was working with the best corset maker in the world. They showed how much it was being sucked in and in and in, and it showed where skin was going and where flesh was going. She showed the cameras how she couldn't sit down. She showed them commentary from her family members as she got them on a video call and everyone was commenting about how tiny her waist was. Kim Kardashian put this waist narrative into the mainstream from the very get-go. Well, she knew it was going to happen. Like, she knew that this conversation was going to take place. One of her quotes to Vogue was very interesting to me. She said, I honestly had to practice. It's a proper corset. I've never had one like this. It's insane. She knew that we were going to be talking about this because she made the video before the Met Gala had even happened to be released after the Met Gala. Kim has used her assets, and I mean her physical assets, as a marketing ploy for years. The first thing that comes to mind is the cover of Paper Magazine, where she did that very now Mm. iconic champagne, arse in the air kind of pose, which was like the least articulate way I could possibly describe (laughs) it. Arse in the air. And all power to her. She is so allowed to do that. But I think we also must look at this all with a critical eye. If you want to use your body as a weapon, you're allowed to, but we're allowed to comment on it. And I think it is a two-way street. That said, I have to come back to what you said before because I agree with you. The issue when we talk about women's bodies is people don't do it very well, even in cases where we can. Yeah. And that's what I find really hard in that, yes, we can have a conversation, but actually we need to be very careful with that conversation. I think what is being muddied here as well is that we need to acknowledge the fact that it's almost a division now. There are two versions of Kim Kardashian's body. There is the actual tangible flesh that Kim Kardashian walks around in every single day. And then there's Kim Kardashian's body, the product, the empire empire, the marketing machine. She has leveraged an entire empire off of her waist, off of her bum, off of her boobs. And we should be able to analyze that, not in a nasty way, not in a critical bitchy way at all, but we should be able to analyze it from a a journalistic standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, because Kim Kardashian's body has been the center of her empire for so long. She has had perfume bottles modeled off her naked body yeah. where she literally had like a paper mache, I don't know the correct terms for it, <laughs> clay setting on her body and had that physically made into a Perfume. perfume bottle. And then she had those perfume bottles in the Vogue.com video. She had shots of them interspersed when they were showing her waist. She wants us to talk about this. She sells her waist via diet, lollipops, laxative teas, meal replacement shakes, waist trainers. I honestly believe that if you want to cash in money based on your body and your waist, you are making your body and your waist fair game for public discussion. If you are asking us, do you want to look like me? Do you want a waist like me? Do not be surprised when the public responds. But I don't think she is. She's not not the one that's coming out and saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're yeah. talking about my body. True. It's other people doing it on her behalf, which I find a little bit more troubling. It is almost like you need to remove conversations about her body from her body. And I know that sounds weird, but it, this is not a physical thing. It's actually a business thing. I want to touch on two quotes from 2014 um, after the publication of this paper cover, where people started talking about Kim's use of her body as a marketing ploy. The first quote is from Rob Shooter, who was the host of The Gossip Table. And he said, we have actors going to drama school and musicians honing their craft for years and Kim drops her clothes and suddenly all we care about is Kim. The second quote was from Jason Lynch, a contributing writer for Quartz at the time, who said Kim Kardashian's brand is Kim Kardashian herself. This week really capped how brilliant she is at marketing Kim Kardashian and keeping Kim Kardashian relevant. Mm. And that repetition of Kim Kardashian is not just Kim Kardashian, the character, but the physical Kim Kardashian 
body the proportion exactly and I agree with you I think first and foremost if you're going to use your actual body to sell perfume there's no way a you're not using more subtle arrangements to sell things like you're not using more subtle aspects of your body to sell things Mm. and b that we then can't comment now I'm not saying that this allows listeners to come into the Facebook group and be like I don't like her body exactly I don't like this proportion this is my favorite kind of body absolutely not that's not helpful or productive to anyone but there absolutely is a line between nastiness and commentary. We're allowed to comment because this is a public conversation that's happening whether we like it or we don't. I'm not here for nastiness at all, but we do have a right to discuss this and I really vehemently believe that. I think Kim Kardashian as a brand, as a body, as a public figure says a lot about womanhood in 2019. She says a lot about what we value. She says a lot about what we like and what we follow and what we don't like. And therefore, I do want to talk about it. I want to talk about why Kim Kardashian's body is so prolific in the mainstream why it's continually relevant, how she's managed to maintain that relevancy across decades. Do I think I can come out and say, oh, Kim Kardashian's too skinny, too fat, too tall, too small? No, I don't think that. But let's not pretend that this is black and white. Well, part of me feels like we've reached a point where we assume that any conversation about a female's body is body shaming or nasty or inherently anti-feminist. And I flatly reject that. I don't think, though, like we keep coming back to, there are many bodies in the world we're allowed to talk about. That's mm-hmm. what I think, truthfully. Um, but if we're in the business, and and sometimes I feel like the conversation online isn't where it needs to be. I don't think it's good enough. I don't think it's smart enough. I don't think it's helpful enough. Which is why I remove so many of the posts. Exactly. Yeah. But if we're in the business of talking about brands and we have to acknowledge the many parts of a brand, physical attributes included. What I wanted to talk to you about very quickly is this concept of body shaming, right? And body shaming, we all understand what it means, what it does, you know, how damaging it can be. But it feels like to me, the minute I comment on someone's body, we are subbing that action for body shaming. Mm. Like I actually think we're removing the definition of body shaming from body shaming as if the minute we comment on anyone's body, we must be body shaming. Do you feel the same? Well, I feel like, I guess I'll use Lisa Wilkinson's comments as an example. I think they may have blurred the lines a little bit. I think if she had her time again, she would probably be clearer with what she was trying to say and how. I think the comment, where is she hidden all of her internal organs, wasn't said with malice. I don't think she's saying that to be like, Kim Kardashian is doing something bad or she's wrong for doing this. I think she's literally just having that, oh my God, shock moment, which is what corsets are designed for. And what Kim Kardashian was aiming to do. Yes. She why else, wants us to Why else that? be in pain and say that you aren't going to be able to breathe on or the red it. carpet, yeah. which she said to Vogue, if you don't want that reaction? Yeah. I don't think all conversations about bodies are body shaming at all. I think Lisa Wilkinson's tone is what people took umbrage with, not necessarily the actual words. I do always want to talk about Kim Kardashian's body, though, because I think it is something to marvel at and something to analyze and something that a lot of money and time and investment has gone into. So I agree with you. I do have a frustration there where any discussions of bodies are ultimately put down to body shaming. And flippantly referred to as such. I think here's the thing about the Kardashians. The reason that they're so famous is because they're hugely aspirational. Whether that makes you eye roll or not, that's the power in their brand. I think they're aspirational when it comes to how they are as mothers. I think they're aspirational with regards to the cars they drive, the clothes they wear, the parties they go to, and the bodies they commercialize and commodify. bodies they build. Brick by brick. For me, it comes back to this idea that we touch on a lot in the podcast, where you do cop a little bit sometimes 
when you talk about women, when you want to kind of critically analyze a woman's actions and people accuse you of being anti-feminist in the same way that if you want to critically analyze a woman's body, you come across as body shaming. I think you have to do it in a very, very careful way, a very smart way, a very helpful way. And I don't think every conversation flies in this context. I do want to ask you, though, if you actually think the fact that Kim Kardashian walked the red carpet in a corset that looked like it was squeezing every part of her out, which I think it did mm-hmm. look like that, if that matters. Hmm, that's a good question. I don't think it matters at the Met Gala. I think at the Met Gala, it's all about going above and beyond and being transgressive, I guess. It's challenging norms. It's challenging what we think beauty is. It's going above and beyond. And so, no, I don't have a problem with her wearing a corset at the Met Gala at all. I think she looked incredible. I think she... It was iconic, almost, the outfit that she wore and the way that it looked. Uh, If she did this at the Oscars, I might... Raise an eyebrow? I might raise an eyebrow then. What about I think you? I completely agree with you. I think the Met Color is almost about optical illusions. It's about art. It's about art and anything you can do to sort of make us stop and look and wonder is actually not a bad thing. Mm. More power to her as well for releasing the video with Vogue to show the work that went into it. I think maybe that's why I, I really don't give a shit that she did it because we saw how much pain she was in, how it all came together. She wasn't trying to gaslight us. She was just wanting to create a show-stopping moment. And I think in this conversation, a lot of people can be right at the same time. Kim Kardashian can absolutely be right for doing what she wanted to do. We can be right if we want to comment on how she did it. Absolutely agree. I'm really happy she did that video. And I I had all of the same thoughts watching it as you did. I'm like, I am grateful to her for putting this out because it doesn't give people the illusion this was easy. Or normal. Or natural. I think that's all we've got time for. It is a long one this week. I reckon that's one of my favourite episodes that we've uh, sat down and recorded. I had a lot of fun chatting about all that with you. Oh, thank you. I had fun with you too, (laughs) as always, considering we spend most of our lives in front of this microphone. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We so appreciate your support more and more and more. Like we keep touching on in the last few weeks, if you do want to help us out, the best thing you can possibly do is leave us a review, five-star review, if that's what you are so inclined to do. Or a one-star, if that's what you're inclined to do. Definitely don't do that. That, or you can subscribe. Subscribe kind of helps us out in the chart. So if you aren't subscribed to the show, please just click that little button subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And come see us at Mecca Land. As we said, our code is shameless. You can get two tickets for half the price that you typically would. We want to make friends with you all. We want to see you all. Of course, we'll be there later this year for a live show. But if you want to meet us soon, you can meet us this weekend. That would be wonderful. In the meantime, you can find us at Shameless Podcast on Instagram or Shameless Podcast Community on Facebook. Plug, plug, plug. And that's about all. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
there is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.